Hello. This is the first episode of the Colour of Chalk podcast. Welcome. My name is Alina Azadeh. I'm a writer, an artist, cultural activist. And this podcast is the first offering from We See You Now, which is a whole program of literature-focused work being created through my writing residency with the South Downs National Park Authority. For this first podcast, I am on Berlin Gap Beach, and we are specifically locating this project around the Seven Sisters Country Park and along the Sussex Heritage Coast. So if you know it, that's between Beachy Head, just by Eastbourne, and along to Seaford Splash Point. So we're on the southeast edge of the UK. For each episode, I'm going to be walking or wandering, talking with a guest, usually a writer, along a different route across the area and just respond to everything that this area has to offer in terms of inspiration for writing and to think about and reflect on how our relationship with nature and the coast has been shaped by our upbringing, our identity and our sense of belonging. It is a beautiful, warm, mid-September's day. It's the afternoon, beautiful iridescent water, flashes of white mercury straight ahead of me where the sun is just catching. There's a, a sailboat moving across slowly from right to left. There's a, there's a man with his young daughter, you can hear, splashing around. The tide seems to be quite low. I'm not sure if it's coming in or out. I didn't check this time. And you've got people who um, come down here, they've got their wetsuits on, some not, some are just in the sea. People are wandering over the rock pools. It feels like the last blast of summer and um, some people are still on holiday. You can kind of get that sense. But you can come here and sometimes I come here very early in the morning and I have been alone sometimes on this beach or maybe there's one or two people and it feels safe and it feels welcoming as well as sometimes deeply emotional. And I am <laughs> in my pop-up beach tent, which is like my little writing office for warm weather when it's not too windy. So I'm planted right here, just a few meters from the shoreline. Behind me, the incredible white cliffs Although they aren't completely white, they are really an array of different colours. The flint lines and um, you see toward the top there's ochres and sienna browns and patches of sand. and So it really varies. And then there's the, the green fringes of the Seven Sisters to the right, which goes right down to Cookmere Haven. So we're at one end, so you can walk all the way over and you come to Cookmere Haven, which is the heart as well of the Seven Sisters Country Park. And then to my left, again, the, the cliffs continuing around. They take in two lighthouses, one at the top, the Belty Lighthouse, which was built as a folly and has had to be moved back because of the erosion and didn't work as a lighthouse, so is now a B&B. &B. And then down further along towards Beachy Head, a stripy orange and white lighthouse, and then to Eastbourne. And so that's where I am, on this pebbly beach with patches of sand, the warm sun on my bare feet, and I thought I would share a bit um, 
where the personal inspiration for this project began. So aside from my own deep love of this landscape, which I've spent time in on and off since I was a child, I know that it's a beloved place for many, many, locally and across the world. And, you know, there's so much people have written about and made art about. It's a visual and a sensory feast for the eyes and the, the feet and the heart. And, and there are many histories that are known. There are many that were overlooked. I'm also very personally connected to, to this landscape through my Iranian mother. So my mother arrived from Iran in the mid-60s. She came to Eastbourne. She flew in, unlike many Iranians now who are in desperate circumstances arriving in boats, for example, and in terrible conditions um, with very few safe and legal routes here. She came here at that time quite easily to study to be a nurse and to work for the NHS, and which, as we know, has much of its foundations built on migrant labour and expertise and love and care, as is now the case. And she met my English dad there in Eastbourne, and they moved inland, and I grew up in Kent. And my mum, you know, she lived a full life. She had many challenges because of where she came from, who she was, and just life. But she thrived here. And I won't talk a lot about her now, but I'll refer to her at points because she's very relevant to some of the themes and the journeys of this project. And I'm currently completing a, my first book, which is about my mother and myself. It's a chronology, and a blended autobiographical story. And the final chapter of that book is set here at Berlin Gap. And so the aspect of my mother's life and the story that's relevant to this particular beach, this start of the Seven Sisters and this coastline is that my mum actually died in the sea. Her ashes are scattered in the sea here and so this has become a really extraordinary place in our family archaeology. And so I, late 2019, I came down here as I often do when I've completed something and I had got to what I thought was my final draft, but was only my third draft, I'm now in number nine of my book. And I came down here for some little mini celebration. And I went into the cafe for a cuppa, and then I wandered into the visitor center, and my eye, my eye was immediately drawn to a thick white painted line on the floor, just a few meters back from the door, which is again maybe just, what, 20 or metres, so metres from the edge of the cliff itself. Now I noticed that it carried the date 2053, which is when the edge of the cliff and the water line is predicted to be by that date. And something about that shocked me in that moment. So apparently this cliff is eroding, I think it's at a rate of 0.6 or maybe even higher even be 0.8 I think it fluctuates but I think recently with extreme weather it's it's rising and so I began to reflect in a very visceral way 
on rapid climate change, on human and land loss. And in the same breath, you know, this awareness of this continual tide of water which recedes and then returns, no matter what, like a kind of strong, life-giving blood, this force of the sea, just feeling in quite a profound way a part of nature myself, part of this landscape, but my mum, who is somehow part of, of the sea, of the cliffs, of the land here, literally, and so connected to her in that way. And I scribbled down a, what I thought was a poem and it turned into a story and became the basis of this project. And at the time I was really lucky. I was given a lot of support and guidance through um, New Writing South, um, Writing Our Legacy, who are a diverse literature organisation and the community of writers there. And it's set in the future when the coastline and the Seven Sisters whole area, including the Cookmere Valley, will have changed much more dramatically than it has even recently. And that's all I'll say. You can have your own response to that story. But it was a spark for running a series of writing retreats, which had to be on Zoom because of COVID, and getting writers in our communities. So black, brown, writers of color, writers of migrant heritage, to think about the themes of the work and respond to that creatively. It's how you can actually draw on this landscape to write about life experience, a transcultural life experience. You know, this coastline is rapidly changing. It's also a border. You think about arrivals and departures and the other nations that we or our families, maybe our parents or grandparents, have moved from. About their losses, yes, but also about the human riches and the gifts that they they have brought or we have brought through the process of migration and whether that's forced or whether that has been chosen depending on why and how you came here and I asked them to think about the line of the cliffs and about edges physical and psychological given the, the both the pandemic that was you know it was hard lockdown time then and and the events that were happening around that created the Black Lives Matter movement. So it was a quite a highly charged time to be working together and navigating our way through on Zoom. And to think about how we care for ourselves and how important it is to care, to care for, for all that's living. And to think about how we feel about what's to come. This fast-changing world, this rapidly changing landscape and um, how do we respond to that? What actions do we take? What, what words might we want to write? And deeply connected with this is, of course, the emergency call for the radical care of, of this coastline, of the land, of the sea, and to pay attention to how it's changing. And I know there's a, a nature recovery campaign. And I've been walking a bit with the rangers and the um, manager of the Seven Sisters and finding out about these nature-based solutions to mitigating some of the impacts of climate emergency and protecting it from further harm and drawing attention to what's needed, inspiring people to, to get involved in that. 
being able to now, through this project, bring people actually out here into the landscape, which we did for the first time last week. 14 of us, of the larger cohort of writers that we've worked with, with Writing Our Legacy over the last year and a half, was really extraordinary. And for me, it's a dream come true, because although, as much as I love to be alone and create a solitude in my little beach tent, <laughs> writing, dreaming, I also really love to be among fellow creatives and in a, in a process of exchange and solidarity and just witnessing other people discovering what's here and sharing that. And so you'll meet some of these writers. So you'll, you'll either meet them through the podcast series or you'll read their work or you'll hear their work. And we're going to be producing new writing that will sit across the landscape next, for next year that you can access uh, there'll also be some writer takeovers of the park social media and there's going to be an anthology that people can submit work to. And so uh, although the primary focus initially is the, the, the lens on this area through the eyes, ears and hearts and pens of uh, black, brown, writers of colour and writers who've been on the move in some way, either this generation or previously their family, so of migrant heritage, and then extending out to people who may also be missing in the recorded history of the park, whether that's through gender or sexuality or through class or through disability and access or through mental health. This is also a project that's, that is for everyone. And so for me, this landscape, as well as being a source of creative inspiration and a reminder of loss and change. It's also a place of recovery, of rest and of, of, of this gentle adventure because you'll always find new spots and perspectives and viewpoints and part of animal life that you haven't seen before and as well as people from all over the world when you come to the onto the beaches. And it's also a place, though, that I, I want to walk in solidarity with those who don't have the freedoms or privileges that my mother or I or my children have had access to. And I guess, in a way, you know, I have my mother, <laughs> the idea of my mum, my lifelong experiences here, to anchor me and now this residency. But I know it's not so easy for many people who I've met and know who live in, in towns and cities or on the edges who don't or can't easily access the landscape. Maybe it's just a bit too far out of reach or unknown. Or because of rural racism, experiences of that, which might have put them off, of not feeling at ease, or being remarked upon or being noticed in a way that's uncomfortable. So I'm not talking about the, the continual rich and diverse mix of tourists that come to, say, Berlin Gap or Cookmere. Or... I don't mean that. I mean those who live around here within reach but I don't feel like this rural space is for them as much as it might be for anyone else to enjoy or to feel that they can walk here in confidence and safety and make their belonging here if that's what they want to do and I've just finished a book by Anita Seti called I Belong Here which is a journey along the backbone of Britain so along the Pennine Way and she's someone who had quite a harsh experience of racism and then as a kind of counter to that she decided to 
reclaim her, her space as a northerner and walk the Pennine Way. And then she wrote a book about it. It's really fantastic. And there's a quote that I love that is really apt for this project, which is, to anyone who feels like they don't belong, I say, build a sense of belonging in your own mind, body, and in nature. A sense of belonging that no one can take away from you. Learn to inhabit yourself. I'll put a link to the book in the programme notes, but um, highly recommended. And yeah, that really sums up what we want to do with this project. And so I find that inviting people to directly experience the landscape through writing and in other ways, alone or together, is just a brilliant, uh, pleasurable and a powerful way to support this process to happen, this process of inhabiting ourselves and inhabiting the landscapes through which we pass and with which we, you know, want a deepened, deepened relationship. And so I'm asking the question, what does this landscape and this national park, being a place of welcome and a landscape for all, actually look and sound like? So anyway many questions and they say someone says the questioning is the answer which I really like so now I'm going to play you the story prologue story and I recommend if you are able to come down to the coast or the edge of water somewhere a river or the sea it's quite a good story to take with you on headphones and, and bring a notebook and a pen or if you do notes on your phone along with you because you might find that you want to write something in response to it at the end, or it might spark something that you might want to submit to the project later. And, and can you hear that? That sounds like the Spitfire again coming over, and we've got the tide is coming in now, so I'm going to have to move quite soon. So um, the next time you will hear me, it will be in the company of one of my walking and writing allies. And so do subscribe to this series and see the program notes for links and a book recommendations, which I will always offer. So today I have two. One is the Hidden Sussex Anthology, which is how I met a number of the writers who I'm working with and how I came to be in partnership with Writing Our Legacy, who made that anthology happen. And I have two stories in it. You can get it online. And uh, the other one is Anita Sethi's I Belong Here. I think that's published by Bloomsbury. Also be a link in the programme notes. So, yeah, it's gotten very quiet now. I can't see anyone in the sea. I might try and have a dip in the sea. Maybe it'll be the last dip before, before the autumn arrives, probably. And um, then I'll take my tent down and head home. But I look forward to seeing you along the coast or inland soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. We See You Now by Alina Ozaday. The edge of a cliff. Beyond, a creamy slate grey sea. Below, jagged patches of bright emerald summer grass set in an expanse of bald hard earth. Peer over, see a beach. Muted grey, blue and pink pebbles with slivers of sand streams in between. Above, 
across a clear, intense blue. Families of torn-up cloud forms pass over, broken into by the occasional scar mark of a silver flight trail, a rare sight. Behind us, a valley, now flooded into a vast riverbed, stretching a mile back at least, shredded patches of light skirting over its water from gaps in the clouds above. Sheep speckled over hill mounds high up on each side. All direct roads to the edge of the coast have long closed, so we walked here for hours along the paths over the downs above this valley, where only a few decades ago we could have reached the cliff easily along a hedgerow path across the valley floor. Blackberries on one side, open fields on the other. Towards the end of that lost path, high up on the right, a row of shepherd's cottages once rose into view, before the chalk hedge bordering their front gardens had eventually surrendered into the insistent arms of the sea. All this came so much swifter than expected, as water levels rose, chased upwards by the heat. Further west along the coast, there was once a cliff-top cafe, fronted by a long row of glass windows, where we would sit, staring out together at the sublime beauty of the water, hot tea and cake in our hands. But as the sea took the floor of the valley back, the cliffs became much more elusive, and access to the water's edge down a set of grilled metal steps, accessible only at low tide, grew so much more perilous. But many continue to travel here, drawn to the crumbling beauty of these cliffs and the view beyond them, as their top skin slowly began to melt back into their mother's watery womb. Reaching back into their early past, 84 million years ago, when the cliffs formed part of the seabed, these delicately aging chalk beasts remembered how comforting it was to just lie low in deep water and let the rhythm of the tides gently lull them to sleep. So much better than to be exposed and protruding as they now are, battered at full force by the wind, rain and bitter cold for much of the year. Then the cliffs remembered, far more recently, just a few million years ago, how, as the ice melted and the dinosaurs disappeared, a crack had opened in the land they were once joined to, parted ways with itself and birthed this small island and its few outliers, and how they found themselves on the margins of the mainland, alone. And how this outer skin of creamy rock felt itself sliced up, painfully exposed, a layer cake of chalk, sand and silt, embedded with so many plant and animal nations. And how, over time, the cliffs were fed by a growing number of humans as they began to populate this land and it hungrily absorbed the calcified bones of those who died in shipwrecks and other misadventures, trying to reach the shore here when all other routes to seeking refuge on the island had closed. There was one particular point on this coast, along which the cliff's edge rose and sank seven times, where it watched, with puzzlement, lone humans, in grief and despair, use the edge of the cliff to return themselves to the water. More recently, they watched children sent out from far places to seek safety here, many without parents, crowded onto the most fragile of rubber boats, fall and sink into the shifting inky blue waters. 
An undercurrent of pain swirled against the sides of the cliff every time it felt these soft limbs brush against it. And it was around this time that it realised that not since the times of war and attempted invasions had it been given an identity which was alien to itself. It had become a border, a site of violence. Its tears bled into the water and the sea's temperature rose again. This continued for decades. And then, one spring afternoon, a lone traveller to these cliffs lay down on the grass to rest. Falling asleep as the sun set, with her long jet-black hair let loose on the grass, the rosy afterglow of the sunbeams on her olive skin, she thought she heard voices emanating from the ground below. A mixture of fear, disbelief and excitement surged through her body and she strained her ears for clarity. And the cliff, knowing it was being listened to, responded. As the traveller pushed her ears closer to the earth, sensing the rising vibrations through the rock, she could hear them far more clearly, depending on where she put her ear and how loud the water was at any given moment. On certain patches she detected the sounds of five or six distinct voices bubbling up towards her. Elsewhere, a few hundred, more cacophonous and intense at those points. And closest to the edge, now trembling, she heard a chorus of several thousand, merging with the sounds of waves crashing close and then tenderly lapping further out to sea, following the constantly changing state of the tide cycle. She lay there for hours on the softest patch she could find, several metres from the edge of the cliff, mesmerised, unable to leave. Her fear subsiding through the darkness until the sun rose. She had no way of knowing if what she was hearing had been there all along, or if this had suddenly begun to happen, like a switch being flicked. Perhaps because she was someone who had learned to listen deeply to others, the cliff sensed this and chose her first. In the years following the great pandemic, as the waves of grief at the loss of loved ones fostered a softening of many hearts and the breaking of others. The cliff noticed humans' increased need for connection with this coastal land and what lay beyond. Since borders had all but shut, it became aware of the unique role it had as a vantage point from where one could just about see and feel a connection with a thin stretch of the larger mainland, now a wisp of blue-grey quietly submerging itself along with all other landmasses within its sight. With the sound vibration from the rock permeating the air above it, the cliff realised it had a hive mind and could hear this mind's thoughts hovering above its landmass, hovering so clearly and with a specific intention in the face of total erasure to try to reach human ears. It knew these humans were the delicate key to its survival, and of their own survival too. And the sea, welcoming in a different and compelling frequency from its crumbling lover, knew it too. The traveller, sensing that something was being asked of her, put her lips to the ground and whispered into the earth. 
the voices stilled. And then it became clear. She turned on her tummy, cupped her hands around her mouth and began to tell her origin story, learned from her mother, of arriving here on these shores, aged three, from a country many months travel away, with just one small backpack. Her mother had told her it was a good thing she couldn't remember this journey herself, which had almost destroyed them both. She described the unexpected kindnesses of those who took them in, as well as the cruelties of others as she grew up, of being forced to leave their home during the war and of their gradual rebuilding of a life here, in a quiet coastal town, with a sliver of a sea view out of the corner of the bathroom window. She laughed and wept and sang the song her mother had taught her for courage through difficult times. She spoke of her fragility, of going right to her own cliff edge, of facing uncertainty and of finding ways to anchor herself, to stay grounded. So much of this, such as building community and making food from their home country, had come through her mother. However, once she died, drowned in a far ocean, her ashes sent back and scattered here in this particular stretch of sea where they had first landed, and now a minuscule part of this chalky monument on which the traveller now stood. She used all the creative ways she could find to grieve and then recover through writing, making, dancing and singing. As she remembered how far she had come, she found the strength and desire to share her hopes, visions and plans for a future she had once doubted was even possible. She felt the earth and sea listening, and eventually rose up and headed back, feeling an intense urge and responsibility to transmit the cliff's tender appeal to return with others from her community, to tell their stories too, not yet knowing why it was important to do so. After a while, in a matter of weeks, not even months, the traveller realised something new and extraordinary had begun to happen. She noticed bees and flower species, which, through her love of nature she was aware had long disappeared, come back to life over the patches of earth where the stories were being told. She brought a friend's uncle to the cliff, a geologist who lived in the next town, and he agreed that the chalk here was becoming less porous than the chalk crust further along the coast which was visibly crumbling far more quickly into the sea. It was, in fact, reacquiring solidity. Impossible. And yet, he exclaimed, returning with others who had spent years measuring with horror and fascination the decaying state of this borderland. As the phenomenon grew, of people coming to listen in quiet wonder to the voices in the ground and gift back their own stories, The geologists decided to test the temperature of the water. It had dropped significantly. And then the traveller understood. The vibration of her story and of the many that followed as it found its way through the body of the cliff had somehow triggered the quiet regeneration of the very land itself. It was as if this coast was recovering the distant memory of being one with its mainland family, and lowering the watery defences that had been destroying it. 
when those living further inland heard of the miraculous renewal of their sinking habitat, they began to join in the collective journeys to the coastal lands. They set off high over the downs with their crafted bodies of stories and food, sharing both with each other as they walked. Those who could not walk confided their stories in those who could, and so it grew. Even the most cynical began to join in, as they found solace and relief in the company of those returning, who seemed so full of hope and new life. After long periods of self-isolation and quarantine, these journeys to the coastal lands began to be seen as a way to embrace and revel in the wonder and wealth of the people's hybridity together after so long apart. This was to become known as the time of thriving. And it's to be noted that the ones whose stories had the greatest effect in bringing the land back to life and calming the sea were the ones whose losses in life were the deepest. It's also to be remembered that everyone who looks far back enough into their own history, including those who call themselves indigenous to this land, will find these stories somewhere in the lives of their ancestors. As we lie on the grass now, like that first traveller, and put our ears to the ground, listen to the talking, singing, mumbling, crying as it rises up in a whole spectrum of languages, of all those who've arrived and lived on these shores since it first formed itself. Amongst them you will hear Gaelic, Welsh, Latin, Swahili, Yoruba, Amharic, Germanic and Old English. Dutch, Dane, Norse, Frisian, Norman French. There's also Patois, Spanish, Urdu, Bengali and Arabic, leading into Farsi and Dari and scores more. It's not just this cliff talking to itself, you see. This internalised Tower of Babel with its vocal root stems, travelling through the layers of rock, is seeking the companionship of new voices still, fresh life in a continual process of call and response. If we focus in, we can hear one, stronger, clearer voice inviting us in directly. We see you now, you living beings from more than one shore. Tell us your histories of lineage, longing and loss, of the arrivals, of the transitions, sometimes visible and welcome, sometimes by stealth in the dark and the storms, of how it was to leave a part of yourselves or your family elsewhere. Tell us what was lost and what took its place as you tried to make sense of who you could become in this new territory. Tell us of your own borderlands and what lies beyond them, of the edges you've been to and the new horizons you've found, of what is possible now from where you stand as you look ahead. Tell us of those moments of love, connection and recovery of crafting a new life, of being held, then let go, of falling and then finding a foothold to continue and to create a future, and of what the future might be for your children as they find new ways to thrive again. Come close and pour your words into us so that we can become the place where all these threads of here and there, of them and us, pull together as a single fabric. Speak to us so that we can remember 
what it is to be whole again. And we began to speak.